we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to establish new government. Hello, you beautiful, beautiful Americans. So pretty. Okay, I want to taste this fucking thing. So, okay, that glass up. Sorry, sorry, bro. <sighs> we're in, yeah, okay, yeah. Give give a little entry on it. We're drinking something new today that neither one of us have ever tried, courtesy of Anchorage Brewing Company, the Andromas Black Sour Ale. It smells good. Sounds okay. sounds about as appetizing as a tube sock full of cow shit. Not gonna lie. On label, but now that it's in glass, let's see here. It smells good. It smells damn good. It smells good. Let's go right in. Hmm. It's like a sour. Wait for it. And then stout finish. Or porter finish, I guess. Interesting. Different. Very good. I like it. I like it. I do too. I like it. And it almost gets better as it goes. It does kind of. Yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting. I'm a fan. I mean, for I'm a the price tag that. on the bottle, it better be. Yeah, for a, a solid 20 piece for mm. the. I don't know how big of a, bo- a liter bottle. That's, that's Pop quiz, big. who's on 20? What? Who's on 20? Pop quiz. Um, Franklin. Really? Really? Really, Franklin? Benjamin? What? Did, what did, this Fuck. is a Benjamin. This is a Benjamin. Oh, oh, that's right. My bad. Um, I had to look, so I, I can't just keep looking. Shit. Jefferson's on the ten. Oh, you're right. That's right. No, you're right. Yes, you're right. Jefferson. Jefferson's on the ten. Lincoln's on the five. Washington's on the one. Who in the name of shit is on the twenty? Hamilton's on the ten. Hamilton's on the ten. Jackson's on the twenty. Lincoln's Fuck, on the I'm, five. I'm way off. I don't know. Um, the fifty. Don't pop quiz me. Is Grant? Mm. Life shit you need to know. <sighs> I just wanted to pay my bills. Right. Oh, we never use cash for that anymore. That's true. All my bills are on auto pay. Mm-hmm. I remember the missus was giving me because we have a rule in our house where. The missus moves the money from account to account, and I just make sure all the bills are paid, and I just set up all the bills on auto pay, so now my job is done. My job's done by a computer. But that's the way the world's going. So many people out of work because a computer took over their damn job. Well, yeah, it's it's like, so we can talk about the wage hike that they were proposing, which, mm. side note, Biden has already told all the governors. Don't be politics enough. I know, but it's Bad. not really politicking. Yeah, it's it like is. You economics. It, you mentioned that name. You're po- talk about economics, but keep names out of it. Anyways, the the POTUS. Yeah, the, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you just don't want to hear his name. No, no. The um, yeah, the the guy up there on the white throne. The person who I probably forgets which where he's waking up every morning. Ninety percent of the time, I have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. I don't know where the fuck I am. <laughs> uh, anyways, um. Already told all the governors and stuff that it's not going to happen this term. Um, yeah, 
he's still going to try, but highly, highly unlikely. It's not going to happen. But where I was going with that was, okay, so you get a $15, we could spend an hour talking about economics, but you get a 15, say you just like federally minimum wage is $15 an hour across the board. You look at the life of paying for an employee to keep your business running, whether it's that employee or another employee, training involved if it's multiples. Um, Like McDonald's, for example, they have them in the Clarkston McDonald's. Um, you can go in there. They have one of those big kiosks. Actually, I think all the McDonald's have them. Oh, the yeah. where you can order from the kiosk, yeah. and then they just so, put your food together and say your name. And so that thing's probably. I mean, I don't know. I'm just going to throw a number out there. Ten thousand dollars. Fuck. We'll say it's twenty. About the price of employing a full time server, um, give or take. So twenty thousand dollars you pay for that machine, and then say about a grand a year in upkeep and. Um hardware updates and you know a computer dude coming in and fixing a glitch here and there so we'll say like a thousand to two thousand dollars a year you know over its lifetime and your business's lifetime that is going to pay off significantly more than consistently having mouth breathers run your business and i refer to mouth breathers as the ones who think they need 15 dollars an hour to work at mcdonald's or taco time or fucking any job that is meant to be a stepping stool into your future careers and endeavors in life absolutely no and i completely agree and i think a lot of people are it's the idea of the american dream but at the same time i i feel like the basis of the american dream is and this is just my personal opinion but the basis of it is you can have whatever you're willing to work for exactly like if you're willing to either go to school, whether that's college or trade school, or if you're willing to go to the military and have your college paid for by the government, if you're willing to just start your own business and bust your ass and build it into something, build into an empire, building it into something spectacular, like that's great and nothing's holding you back. Or if you if you want to sit down and study the stock market or real estate, or if you want to do anything that could result in you basically achieving the American dream. But I think the, the concept of it has been construed into everyone should just be handed it to yeah, have it handed socialistic. To That's it's it, it pretty much it. And I get like 15 bucks an hour. Minimum wage is not a livable wage. Like no. I get that, but it's never meant to be that way, but it's all, yeah, exactly. It's never, it's never meant to be that way. Well, and t- go ahead. I'm not and it's, you it's more, like you can't, it's it's kind of meant for the people having their first job exactly. or the people having their, you know, working through college job that they really don't give a shit about, but it pays right. some of the bills yeah. while you live in a dorm room, you know, and so on and so forth. So I just think that the well, idea of it has just been fucked up. I agree. And to piggyback off what you're saying, the perception of the American dream nowadays with many people um, is that whatever job I do, I should be able to get rich from and live like a CEO of Chevy. We'll say, for example, like if my, if my American dream in my mind is, well, I should be able to just go get a job wherever, work my 40 hours a week. And I make a, you know, I make 60 or $70,000 a year. No, no, I'm sorry. There are jobs out there like that. There are very many jobs out there like that. If you actually look, but yeah. you have to apply yourself. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, the CEO of Chevy, for instance, he's not a 21-year-old kid who just decided, I want to be the CEO of Chevy. Yeah, and then stomped his foot and got his way. Yeah, exactly. He is probably, who knows, maybe he's someone's nephew. Maybe he's, you know, had some stuff handed to him along the way, but he's probably a smart dude right. that has his shit together, probably has a few degrees, if oh, yeah. not, isn't, who knows, he might be a doctor, who the hell knows, not a medical doctor, obviously, but... And not to, um, oh, oops, I'm using the wrong browser for that. Hmm? Um, oh, just a second while I do a quick search here. Not to, I'm not dissing on what you said there, but like the things like, um, that were, uh, like saying, um, people having things handed to them. And there are businesses out there like that. Don't get me wrong, but. Well, for a, lot the of, business. a lot of family-owned businesses. Yeah, are like and there's that. a reason that, like, okay, so um, we'll use like, let's use Boeing for example. I don't know the whole history, but I'm just going to use it in a um, a proverbial sense, if that's even the right word. Mm-hmm. Um, so the owner and founder of Boeing, which I do know, he started pretty much in his garage making airplane parts. Um, built it up, just spent his life because he loved making parts for airplanes, and built it from where it was. Um, built it to where it is now through his legacy. Um, he didn't just take that business and I don't know who he handed it off to or who took after over it after he, um, hung up the hat, but we'll say, and we'll just say in theory, like it was his, he has two sons. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, loves them both, but he's got one son who's, I'm not even going to say he's stupid. We're going to say one son is just great with his hard labor. He fucking goes out there, busts his hands, busts, busts his ass. Great with his hands, works hard, puts in as many hours as he needs to um, to bring the money home, and he loves it. He's satisfied. Then you have the kid who's willing to bust his ass, but he's also smart with the books. He's good with the money. Now, the other brother doesn't really give a shit about that so much. Well, say the older brother, the other brother's the oldest. Well, just because he's the oldest doesn't mean he's going to get it handed to him. Right. This isn't the Queen of England or some no, shit. No, and it's going to be like, okay, you like doing this. All right, we're going to put you head of engineering. Um, and yeah. you're smart with the books. You're smart with sitting down and talking to people, making deals. You're going to be in the boardroom. You're going to be in the boardroom. You're going to be doing the, in, in more than likely in my mind, I'd be like, well, that sounds like a good deal to me. More likely I'd be the one who'd want to be working with my hands. Yeah. Well, the other brother sits down with all these other companies and does the political Does the bullshit. meetings and makes the deals and, yeah. you know, does all that crap. It's like in, in to keep it going, but say he only had one kid. That kid was just a fuck up. A retard didn't actually give a shit. He just had daddy's trust money and did whatever the fuck he wanted to. Dad had no one to leave it to except for him. Um, and so he does. Well, guess what happens to that company in five years? It's down in the shitter. Stocks are fucking through the floor. Well, no, the and that's kind of the sad thing, too, is there are people out there who they start family businesses that whether they're local global regional whatever they do really really well and a lot of a lot of private family business owners they want that business to eventually be their retirement plan so then they leave the business to a kid or you know or something like that and within five years it just gets driven into the ground exactly and then the doors are closed there's no obviously once the doors close on a family business money stops Yep. It completely stops. Exactly. And the thing is, is people need to realize, like, once you make, you succeed that well Mm -hmm. and you do good, great. Keep it going. God bless you. Hopefully it stays that way, which you bust your ass, it probably will. Right. But 
15, 20 years down the road, things change, whether it's your fault or not, that gets driven through the floor and you still need to make money. You don't really have a resume. Your resume consists of a majority of, I had a business for 20 years that failed. Yeah, that failed after however long. Right. Even if it wasn't your fault. Or like little Timmy, dad dies. And he's a shithead, drives his dad's business, multi-billion, we'll say multi-million dollar business. He drives it into the ground in five years, you know, sucking up the money, not giving a crap about keeping it thriving and rolling. Right. And then he realizes, okay, I'm bankrupt, got to sell the mansion, got to sell the cars, lost my trophy wife. Um, now I'm on the street because reality came and punched me right in the dick. Yeah. And it will. And that was just the idea. And that's part of, of the American dream. America is not kind to you. No, it's not. And that's not a bad thing. But that's thing, kind of the good thing a... about the American dream is it's like if if you're willing to work for it, yeah. you can have it. Yeah. Now, recently, I think more things other than just a $15 an hour has changed. Then you have people who openly take advantage of state-funded assistance mm-hmm. or government-funded assistance. You know, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, Social Security disability disability for fuck's sake that's probably the worst one. Oh god right. where it's just people who are they're able to work they just don't want to um or in some cases and maybe that's the the government's the fault on that one in some cases people will openly say i make more money on disability than i would if i went and got a job that i qualify for oh yeah so exactly where, so i don't really hold people to blame for that one because where's the motivation to go get a $12 an hour job at a, or a $10 an hour job at a grocery store when you could stay home and make the equivalent of 25 and do nothing. Exactly. And just hang out. When I saw a perfect little uh, meme, floating, meme floating around Facebook, it was um, like your stereotypical chubby little bully kid standing there with his blue ribbon. I mean, he wearing a white wife beater tank top. Yeah, provided he's 10 years old. But yeah. he's holding his blue ribbon, and he's like, I got the same ribbon that our best, I don't remember what it was, we'll just say the best um, baseball player got, but I didn't do anything. And then it shows the same guy sitting on a Lazy Boy, drinking a beer, saying, I still make $40,000 a year, and I don't do anything. Yeah. And it's just like that mentality. It's learned. Like I think we talked about in the last episode. It's learned behavior, or we've talked about that together yeah or it's it's learned behavior it's cultural behavior it's any any way anyone wants to look at it and i want to and i want to drive this this whole idea home of like because we we know people out there who are like well the ceos you know they just get stuff handed to them and these people that make a lot of money just get stuff handed to them i can tell you right now within my family on the in-law side that this successful business that he has now was not handed to him. He was on the verge of, you know, losing house and stuff. And he brought it back to where it is now. Very successful. Takes care of himself financially well. Employs his kids. Employs his kids and they are taken care of financially well. And he also has other employees who are provided for very well. And so... Um, but I want to talk about, so I did find So I found the, um, where, where I'm going with all this is like, it's not fucking handed to you uh-huh. and I can use, so GM general motors, which, you know, GMC, Cadillac, Chevy, all those, those fucking, Jeep. everything that falls under yeah. Jeep. Exactly. That falls under GM motors. <clears throat> the CEO of, um, GM motors, Barra 
Mara, Mary Barra. Um, she has been the CEO of GM since 2014. All you feminists out there, if there's any who are listening to our stuff, prick your ears up because this is a woman. But anyways, she is the first female, um, oh, I didn't know this, the first female CEO of a major automaker. <clears throat> um, she exceeded in 2013, uh, December 2013, Dan Ackerson, the preceding CEO, named her the successor. But so diving into her life, okay, so in theory, if she just had everything handed to her, this story is going to, if this is what you're thinking, this is this will go and show and prove you wrong. <clears throat> so Barbara was born in Royal Arc, Michigan. Her parents are Finnish descent. Um, her ancestors from a village of, I'm going to try to pronunciate that, um, in Finland somewhere. Um, so they're, they're Finnish migrants, uh, lived in Minnesota in a mining town. Um, they had, these are her grandparents, had three children, her father. Yeah. Her father was um, worked for 39 years at the Pontiac Car Factory in Detroit. He was a fucking Detroit line worker. Just a blue collar man. And Pontiac's GM, right? Yes. Okay. It was well, Pontiac's no more, but it was. Um, <clears throat> oh, um, they, oh yeah, they stopped making Pontiac altogether. So sad they? when that happened. Such a good line of cars. <laughs> she graduated. Oh, she graduated private school. No, Waterford Mott Mott High School. Just and I looked it up to see if it's even like a prestige high school. Yeah. I'm diving into this thing to prove my point. Uh -huh. Just a normal freaking public school, public high school. <clears throat> so from there. Um, she didn't even graduate with anything great, no honors or anything like that that I found. Um, she graduated from General Motors Institute in 85, where she obtained a Bachelor of Science. Oh, she got a degree, science degree, in electrical engineering. So she worked her ass off. Electrical engineering ain't easy. Anybody who's looked at it. Barra was inducted into the Engineering Honor Society, so she busted her ass in college. Uh -huh. Um and then she then attended Stanford Graduate High School of Business on a GM fellowship, receiving her master's in business admin degree. So she knew that she was wanting to go places and possibly lead somewhere. Right. She knew it was going to go to CEO. Eh, probably not. Um, but who knows? So from there, she worked her ass off um, and worked her way up to she served as the as executive VP of global product development, purchasing and supply chain at GM Motors. So she worked her way up from there. I'm not going to dive into how she worked her way up there, but from 1985, when she graduated college, she, um, worked for GM. She worked for GM and bust her ass, got her masters and it paid off. That's 30, 30 years about 20 years. Yeah. 30 years. Yeah. About thirty years, eighty-five to fourteen. Yeah, yeah, that's twenty-nine years. Yeah, that's busting. That's busting her ass to get to where she is. Wasn't handed to her. Daddy wasn't the CEO before. Daddy was a line worker, and I shouldn't say just a line worker. He was a line worker, blue-collar American. Mm -hmm. Thirty-nine years just working for the union, punching that time card, and she had to work to where she is now. But fucking good for her. That's that's the American dream right there. That's busting your ass. Yeah, that, that took her. She's 59 years old right now, so she's been the CEO for nine years. Is that right? No, 14. So. Seven years. Seven years, roughly. Seven years. So up until 52 years old, um, she was working her way to the top. So, I mean, it's just not handed to her. Just a 
freaking Finnish descendant from Finland. Hmm. But anyways, I'm going to jump off this gravy train because we go all day about it. The, the point of it all is, is you don't just get shit handed to you. Just because the government would drop $15 an hour onto the minimum wage doesn't mean that life is just going to stay the normal and your checks are going to be bigger. Things have to happen to support that type of economy. Right. No, it's... I don't know. It's it's sad. It's depressing. It bums me out. Borderline pisses you off. It, it just doesn't make sense why... why people would just assume that. And then it makes me wonder... Where's the behavior of, instead of, where was this behavior of, hey, forget earning things, I just want things handed to me. Where did that come from, is my question. God, who knows. But. Oh, we could probably, we could spend a whole nother episode just diving in down that freaking gravy train. Oh, no, absolutely we could. And that's the. Maybe that'll be another topic. Maybe. But, anyway, jumping off the American Dream gravy train. But. I was always... What do you got? So I was doing some research because I was intrigued. I got I got shipped part of a... I guess it kind of, if you look at it completely ass backwards, um, tails off the previous topic. Everyone's version of the American dream to me is, is different, obviously. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, some people want a seven-figure salary and a big house and things like that. And then other people just want to be left alone. Other people want other people want to be comfortable. Other people want to just be left alone with their buddies and whatever. And it, it kind of started the thought process of thinking here, and just thinking back to the the origins of motorcycle clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, you and me are both. You know, we enjoy being on two wheels, which. Makes it better, makes your day better than anyone else on four. Um, but it just made me think, like thinking back to the the origins of where kind of riding clubs and motorcycle clubs and stuff like that came from. And it was because back in the day, in the seventies, eighties, you know, motorcycles were very they weren't accepted immediately, especially to the degree that they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people now love the shit out of motorcycles. Well, back in the day, Harley was a a company that catered to the rebellious types, yes. if you will. Um, you know, especially after like the Vietnam War, people come back. They were not welcomed by American civilians. Some, obviously. Um, but most of the time it was people were very anti-war and they looked at soldiers who were just trying to go serve their country as you're a murderer that does X, Y, Z and you can go to hell and blah, blah, blah. Right. So I just kind of started looking into it, and then obviously it developed into, it went from just people wanting to be on long motorcycle rides with their buddies to obviously spawning into 1% biker clubs, which right. are gun runners, drug runners, prostitution rings, um, you know, pretty much anything and everything. All the stereotypical. All the stereotypical, you know, hell's angels, things like that. Um, and so I was kind of interested to see, I was like, cause the U S government classifies certain motorcycle clubs, obviously not all of them. Um, but they, they have a classification of outlaw motorcycle clubs, mm-hmm. which are clubs that are established and long-term 
criminal enterprises, basically, at least in the government's eyes. An extreme, heinous history. Of- exactly. And, of course, everyone knows about <clears throat> the big four being the Hells Angels, the Mongols, uh, the Bandidos, and the Outlaws. Yeah, but, but there's so many more that are either support clubs of the big four, mm-hmm. um, support clubs of medium-sized clubs. I mean, there was a club that was founded in Boise that, according to the U.S. government, is classified as a uh, outlaw motorcycle club that was founded in Boise in the 60s. And they go everywhere in between. Um, there's clubs that are were founded elsewhere. There's clubs that are worldwide, all over the different countries, um, including. I mean, here's just to name a few. What's so, the club in Boise? Uh, Brother Speed. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're talking was about was founded in Boise in the '60s. I did not know that. Um, and then you have just to skim through and read the ones that kind of catch my attention. You got the Bandidos. You got the Black Pistons. Um, you got Brother Speed, you got the Chicanos, you got the Chosen Few, um, Coffin Cheaters, Diablos. Um, there's so many on this list right here, and it's written small and I'm blind. Uh, you got the Gypsy Jokers. Of course, you've got the Hells Angels. Um, you've got the Highwaymen. You've got Iron Horsemen, um, Lost Breed, Mongols, uh, Road Rats, Sons of Silence, Tribesmen, Vagos, Warlocks. You know, there's the list just continuously goes on and on um and it it is it's there's there's street gang warfare and there's motorcycle gang warfare um and one of the the trainings i was fortunate enough to attend was actually in las vegas for a uh motorcycle outlaw motorcycle gang investigating class where Mm -hmm. they basically talked about you know how you get information on these gangs how you you respect these gangs because a lot of the times these guys aren't just like any gang. It's really hard to get a faithful gang member to rat or give information or anything like that on their gang or their club or whatever, because well, first off they don't believe that law enforcement is going to protect them forever, which means, you know, if they can't protect you, then you might get killed. Right. Um, but there are those that, that bring things forward and the, the enterprise that, and it kind of goes into another topic that I was also thinking about before this episode, um, which there were a couple big undercover operations. I'm sure there were plenty, um, but the two big ones that I think of when I think of the government, which I think in this case it was both ATF. Yeah, two ATF agents, um, one of which infiltrated the Mongols Motorcycle Club. The other one infiltrated the Hells Angels. Um, and it turned into just the, the amount of information, whether it be about criminal activities or just their overall culture, if you will, um, was just outstanding. Um, but the, the piggyback part, I guess you'd say, is it made me start thinking about uh, like comparing, comparing to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like a lot of cops say, like you've heard it, I've heard it. Uh, a lot of cops say, like, when you're in law enforcement, you feel that brotherhood, that camaraderie, that closeness, everything like that. Right. But then it, when something happens where you either get injured and you can't be in, directly involved mm-hmm. or retirement comes or anything like that comes, all that tends to go away. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, or if you're in a big, you know, department or agency, like government agency like the ATF, 
you'll work with people in the same building for 20 years. You'll have no idea who they are. Yep. You, you just don't care. Exactly. You're just there to punch your time clock, do your job, get your bosses to notice that you've done your job and then you want to go home. Exactly. Um, and it was kind of interesting to me specifically the one being, uh, the Billy queen infiltration of the Mongols motorcycle club, which there's books out there on it and documentary videos that you can even look up on YouTube. Um, but Billy queen or William queen, uh, wrote a book called under and alone, um, where he talks about the whole, I believe it was a two year, two or three year undercover operation where he actually became a full patched member of the Mongols. Mm-hmm. Um, which Jay Dobbins, the ATF agent who infiltrated the Hells Angels, I don't believe he ever became a full patched member of the Angels. Um, yeah. He attempted to infiltrate the Angels by going and becoming a patched member of a uh, support club mm-hmm. to the Hells Angels. And then he was in the process of transferring over, and I believe he was prospecting with the Hells Angels. Um, and then they shut down the operation. I don't know why. I think if they, whether they had enough information or whether they had uh, possible compromise, you know, whatever. They pulled him, and he was he was never able to obtain a full patch, Hell's Angel patch. Right. Billy Queen did, um, and not only did Billy Queen achieve a full patch of the Mongols, Billy Queen became a the treasurer of his charter or of his yeah of his charter for. The Mongols, which I'm not sure which charter that actually was. I believe it was in California. Uh-huh. Um, but that means they gave him the books. Yeah. Like they literally, without knowing it, they handed an ATF agent their books, which said where their money was going, where their money was coming in from, what drug dealers owed them money, um, what drug dealers they were tied to, you know, gun deals, everything criminal that could have happened. They literally handed it. To the United States government. Right. Um, but, and Billy was the one who actually made the decision to pull the plug, make the arrests, and end the operation. Because the big, and this kind of comes back to the whole camaraderie thing that comes with it. He was getting close. Well, he was getting close. Um, but he also stayed, for the most part, he stayed, like, I know what I'm here to do. I know my job. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like that. But the thing that bit him, because obviously when you're in law enforcement, if you get into law enforcement at 21, you know, you'll be involved 25, 30 years. Right. And then you'll hang it up. And then, like I said, usually the camaraderie, the friendships, things like that kind of go away, maybe with a few exceptions. Right. Um, motorcycle clubs, gangs, it's kind of the same thing. You get involved. You could get involved when you're very young. Um, and then you do you're doing 25, 30, 35, 40 years, which some cops reach out to about 40 years of service. Right. Um, Well, Billy's final straw, if you will, um, was his mother died. So his mother passed away uh, and he obviously had, he didn't go to work at the, he, the only time he would go to the ATF office was maybe once a month to do like a check-in sit down with his boss's, and say like, hey, everything's still going fine. This is where we're at. This is what I'm moving towards. X, Y, Z. And then he obviously had to make the appearances with the Mongols. He had to go right. to the meetings. He had to go to church, which they call their meetings, um, and attend all these parties and gatherings and things like that because he had to keep up the undercover. Right. 
so obviously he told them, Hey, my mother died. You know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be out of the area for a couple weeks or whatever. Cause moms lived somewhere else. So he said he went and did his mom's funeral. He went and did the grieving son thing and whatever he needed to do. And he came back. Well, as soon as he came back, um, he went to the ATF office to sit down with his bosses. He said, nobody even looked at him. Nobody looked at him different. The same people that knew him said, Hey, Billy, you know, whatever it was, it was nothing abnormal. Mm -hmm. He said, so I met with my bosses, went home a couple days later. I take the bike back out. I go to the clubhouse. And as soon as I walk in the clubhouse, everyone in the clubhouse lines up and they just start hugging me one by one. And they start saying, Billy, I'm so sorry about your mom. Let me know if you need anything. I'm here for you. You know my phone number. And every single one of them did it. Yeah. So he felt more camaraderie with these guys who he was about to bust mm -hmm. than the government officials that he was working with trying to basically do the right thing. Right. So it kind of <clears throat> throws off the perception, you know, who's it's whether it's Stockholm or whatever it is, but everyone's perception of who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. Yeah. Um, starts to become clouded. Can, can be re can be really clouded at times. Yeah. And so Billy d went to his bosses and said, Hey, I need, we need to pull the pin. They had plenty of information. They had the books for God's sake. Right. Um, like they, and I think they ended up making a lot of arrests off of that. And once Billy said, you know, Hey, we're going to pull the pin, you know, make the arrest, things like that. It was raid day. B basically. And, uh, Billy was in a car. He told this story in the a documentary that I watched as well. Um, he was in a car on his way to the airport about to get relocated to an undisclosed location until the trials, because then he would have to come back and testify, uh, in the trials, but he's in the car on his way to the airport and he gets a phone call from the vice president of his charter. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, Billy, have you heard what's going on? And he says, yeah, I heard what's going on. Like, they're taking all these guys down, you know, things like that. And the guy said, well, hide out for the day, but we know who ratted and we're going to go kill him tonight. And we want you to come with us. Oh, no shit. Yeah. And so, of course, Billy is just like, at first, he's like, well, hey, man, you got to be sure. Like, you can't, because he doesn't want, on his conscience, he doesn't want, like, hey, some guy's dead for something I did. Right. You know, or for my undercover operation. Um and he's trying to talk this guy down and this guy's just not having it. He's just like, nope, fuck him. He's a rat. We're going to do this. We're going to do that, blah, blah, blah. And so finally he tells him, he's like, he didn't do it. I did. I'm an ATF agent. And he said there were about 15 to 20 seconds of just dead silence. And then he hung up. Oh, fuck. And then, I mean, he's still alive today. Obviously, of course, they were a little pissed off. And they little, right. probably want, they probably still want him dead to this day if they oh, were yeah. able to do it. But I really commend, you know, his ability to not only, because if something like that happens, it would have been super easy for him to just fall right into, hey, I'm just going to be a Mongol. This is my family. This is my family. I'm done. Right. You know, you guys don't give a shit about me. You just want me to do the job. They want me to do a job for them, but they also look at me like a family member is basically where they're at, which it'd be really easy to get caught up in something like that. Oh yeah. Um, and that would be hard because I mean, like you said, how many years did you do that for? I, th I, I'm not sure how long the operation was exactly. I think it was about two or three years. 
I want to so like, I mean, two or three years isn't a ton of time, but it's like, like you said, like you get really close to those guys and you start getting clouded of like, okay, these guys are shit bags. They're scumbags, but they're family. They love each other. They do anything for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're in their mind. Probably this is just a job. Um, more or less. And, but nonetheless, they take care of their own. They take care of their family. They protect their family. And you go back to your normal job where you're doing the right thing and no one knows your fucking name. Um, I'm trying to find to see if there's any agents who did stuff like that. So here's, while you're looking for that, I actually found a little bit more. So in early 1998... Um, as part of an operation to infiltrate motorcycle gangs, Queen joined the San Fernando Valley chapter of the Mongols as the, with the undercover name of Billy St. John um, and was a member of the Mongols for 28 months, so a little over two years. Yeah. Uh, and it said despite his nickname of Billy the Slow Brain, he was successfully within the ranks of the bikers and even hold, held the position of secretary treasurer and then uh, chapter vice president. So he actually worked his way up to VP. Uh, based on the evidence he gathered while in these positions, a series of raids on May 19th, 2000 by almost 700 lawmen in four states led to the arrest and indictment of 54 gang members, 53 of which were convicted. Uh, one took the fall for a brother, and so the second party's charges were dropped. Um, the ATF le- later described Queen's time undercover as its most successful biker gang penetration. Uh, Let's see. He was awarded a medal for it. Um, The Hollywood production company owned by Mel Gibson bought the film rights to the book, but uh, doesn't say there were ever... I don't think there's been a movie made yet. Why the fuck not? I don't know. It'd be a damn good movie. Right? Fuck, it'd be a good movie. Um, yeah, it says after the trial of the gang members, Queen retired from the ATF and wrote the book Under and Alone, the true story of an undercover agent who infiltrates America's most violent outlaw motorcycle gang. In 2003, while it was still only a draft, film rights to the book were sold to Icon, the Hollywood production company owned by Mel Gibson. Hmm. So they've owned the movie rights for 18 years. Shit. Like you'd think somebody, I'm gonna start calling that company and be like, "Hey, where the fuck is that movie?" Right? No kidding. Like, let's get a movie. And then it just says National Geographic made a documentary in 2008, but that's all that's been. That's all that's been done with it. That's all that's been done with it. A movie would be freaking sweet, though. right? Oh, god, just so much good stuff out there. <laughs> I love shit like that. But yeah, it's like you said, it's it's almost sad that the quote unquote illegal stuff that you're a part of mm-hmm. that you have your hands in, yeah. even though you're an agent, those guys are more of your brothers than on the other side of the line. Where it's it's a little freaky. It is. And it's like you said, it's get, it would get tough. The, 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 the cloudy, like when I said, um, like he got close, 
um, I mean, like when I was saying that, I meant like he was getting closer. I'm sure he probably started feeling a point of like almost torn. I'm not going to speak for him, but it's like you almost start feeling like, like, oh shit, am I actually doing the right thing here? I'm sure he never had that full doubt in his mind, but mm-hmm. it's like these guys gave a fuck about me. They gave a shit that my mom was dead, that, um, you know, they asked me if I need anything, were sincere, genuine about it. Everybody else at the ATF, I would be surprised if anybody really knew. Yeah. Besides, you know, supervisors and stuff. But anyways, um, crazy stuff, man. It is. It is. On, on another note of history. Damn shoe. I want to touch a little bit on the, the Capitol riots, and I'm not going to dive into political On the 6th? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, everybody's like, oh, nothing like this has ever happened. No attack like this. And what? Extreme Trump supporter stuff, all that, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's like, we, we'll we start from the beginning. These are, are just major ones. People literally saying there's never been a riot like in this, America's history? Th- well, on the Capitol itself. So we'll talk. We'll start with the. We'll go. We'll start at the beginning. Um, okay. Let's see. In 1812, the Damn, British. We're going back in the day. Yeah, we're starting right at the beginning. Um, Two hundred years ago, the War of 1812. The British invaded Washington, leading the infamous torching of the White House. Um, you, you remember reading about yeah. that history, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then this is the next one: a bomb for peace in 1915. A German-born Harvard University professor planted dynamite near the Senate reception room. No one was injured when he exploded around midnight. The professor wrote the newspaper saying he had done it as an exclamation point in my appeal for peace. He was later he blew up a building for peace. That makes yeah. about as much sense. Let her off in the White House. Knows what? When you could get well, probably when you could get dynamite, just go to the hardware store. Oh, my grandpa just told me the other day that they used to go to the general store in Republic Washington and you could buy dynamite fuses. Right. You buy nitroglycerin? You buy yeah, you could buy dynamite. Yeah. He was like, I bought a lot of dynamite in that store and I was like, Yeah, and you tied it to trees and shot it, you crazy fuck. <laughs> it's like a mile it's like an extreme version of tannerite. Oh yeah. Enough tannerite though, you can level some shit. Have oh, you seen yeah. we, I think we've talked about it on podcasts before where they do it around like a group of hogs. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that before? Or video? they yeah, they put a tannerite bucket in the middle and then cover it in hog feed so they all get like super close mm-hmm. to it and then trip the tannerite and just hog parts everywhere yep so there was that one um attack by puerto rican nationalists in 54 puerto rican nationalists opened fire on the house floor from the visitors gallery above wounding five members of congress um they're caught in prison one was released in 78 the others released the next year after carter pardoned them what the fuck jimmy how would you pardon that what the fuck, Jimmy? Um, the weather underground bombing in 71. Extremist group set off a bomb inside a bathroom of the Senate side of the Capitol. No one was hurt. Um, hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage. The group claimed responsibility for multiple bombings in the 60s and 70s, including the Pentagon and New York City Police Station. What the hell? Yeah. And the armed resistance hmm. unit bombing. Never heard of that one. A decade later, in 83, a leftist group protesting military action in Lebanon and Grenada set off a bomb be inside the Capitol at the time blowing off the door of, the S- of Senator Robert Byrd's office and shredding a portrait of Daniel Webster. <laughs> After a five-year hunt, three women, three women, shit, were charged and given lengthy prison sentences. After this incident, the House and Senate chambers added metal detectors to increase security. <laughs> it took them long enough, which the... Uh, 
increased security, which the pro-Trump mob breached on Wednesday, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's, uh, there's other ones. This, this isn't the first time that, um, people have broken through not necessarily like, um, that resulted in explosions or shooting, but there are times when angry mobs have broken into the white house. There's, there's quite a few of them. These are extreme ones that I pointed out. It just goes to show you, we've talked about many times, educate yourself. I don't listen to the fucking media. And those were all, all the ones you just read were at the Capitol, right? Yeah, those are just, yeah, Capitol. But none, but none of them sounded like riots. No. So are they saying that there's They're, never been a riot at the Capitol, or are they saying that there's never been any, like, ma- major threat to the Capitol? Let's take a little look Let's here. Let's play devil's advocate a little bit. Right. DC riot isn't the first time Capitol has seen violence, LA Times. Let's so the Capitol has seen violence, but not... Maybe they meant not to that degree because there were how many, what, thousands of people there? Yeah. Some crazy number like that? Yeah, this one's of people. so hard to go through because Google's such a liberal search site. Um, let's see. Huh. So a senator was beat the shit out of one time. A senator was? Yeah. It looked like kind of a lame story. He didn't die. Um, there was... Let's see. I know there was... I thought there was one with... Um, <clears throat> oh, come on. Catch up. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. Yep. My browser. I think come on, internet. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Still waiting. Still waiting. Still waiting. Uh, it's just yeah, it's so hard. I should have came a little more prepared for this one. Damn you. Ding it. Damn you. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 not the first time the Capitol has seen violence. And, and maybe I, I could be wrong. Maybe it's the first time that a riot has done something like that. And probably to the level that it was, I would probably agree that it was the first time that many people have broken. But there have been extremists who have violently or and or angrily came into Tried to blow some shit up. Yeah. Um. Yeah, my my uh, this browser is not liking me right now. Well, some will be yeah. Well, since we're on the, it's not a riot, but you've got hero talk today, so I guess I'll steal your this day in history. You go for it. Eighteen thirty six. Okay. <laughs> Just numbers. That's all it is. Not numbers. No. Today, it's not bad. Alamo defenders call for help. On February 24th, 1836 in San Antonio, Texas, Colonel William Travis issued a call for help on behalf of the Texan troop defending the Alamo, an old Spanish mission and fortress which was under siege by the Mexican army. A native of Alabama, Travis moved to the Mexican state of Texas in 1831, soon became a leader of the growing movement to overthrow the Mexican government and establish an independent Texas republic. When the Texas Revolution began in 1835, 
Travis became a lieutenant colonel in the Revolutionary Army and was given command of troops in a recently captured city of San Antonio de Bejar, modern-day San Antonio. On February 23rd, a large Mexican force commanded by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. There was a different line there, so it screwed me up. I thought it was just Ana. <laughs> Uh, arrived suddenly in San Antonio. Travis and his troops took shelter in the Alamo, where they were soon joined by a volunteer force led by Colonel James Bowie. Though Santa Ana's 5,000 troops heavily outnumbered the several hundred Texans, Travis and his men determined not to give up. On February 24th, answered Santa Ana's call for surrender with a bold shot from an Al- from the Alamo's cannon. Furious, the Mexico the Mexican general ordered his forces to launch a siege. Travis immediately recognized his disadvantage and sent out several messages via couriers asking for reinforcements, addressing one of the pleas to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world. Travis signed off with the now-famous phrase, victory or death. Only 32 men from the nearby town of Gonzales responded to Travis's call for help, and beginning at 5.30 a.m. on March 6, Mexican forces stormed the Alamo, through a gap in the fort's outer wall, killing Travis, Bowie, and Davy Crockett, as well as the hundred as well as 190 of their men. Despite the loss of the fort, the Texas troops managed to inflict huge losses on the enemies, killing at least 600 of Santa Ana's men. Impressive. Uh, defense of the Alamo became a powerful symbol for the Texas Revolution, helping the rebels turn the tide in their favor at the crucial Battle of San Juanito. On April 21st, 910 Texas soldiers, commanded by Sam Houston, defeated Santa Ana's army of 1,250 men, spurred out by cries of Remember the Alamo. The next day, after Texans forced captured, oh, Texan forces captured Santa Ana himself, the general issued orders for all Mexican troops to pull back behind the the Rio Grande River, and on May 14, 1836, Texas officially became an independent republic and joined the Union in 1845. God bless the U.S. of A. Good old <laughs> Texas. Texas, you stubborn bastards. You bunch of stubborn bastards. Beautiful. Well done. They did it. I want to go to the. I want to go to frickin' Alamo. Me too. That would be that would be awesome. Um. I want to touch on this one a little bit since we we hit on uh, conspiracy theories in a way. Last time, I'm going to touch on it a little bit. I'm going to bring up the good old COVIDs again Mm -hmm. because we beat that horse so much like a fucking derby racehorse. Um, COVID? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've started doing a little more of my own research. It's hard to find information, especially with the – impediment on free information if it doesn't mean an agenda anymore um <clears throat> talking about uh covid and on the extreme side of if it even does exist to the less extreme side of is it really as serious as it's been made out to be no i in my opinion no covid has been blown out of proportion oh, it's just it's astounding how bad it's become um uh-huh. but you know, I'm going to play to the more extreme side of uh, how how serious is this really? And is it really actually this new virus? And um, 
it's kind of fun to play around with just the thought of it and look at it. Um, it's aggravating at times if you believe that it's a hoax, um, which yeah, I'm not really sold on the fact that COVID doesn't exist. Um, however, I am a firm believer that it has been the numbers have been largely misconstrued and blown out of proportion. Yeah, I don't think there's an argument for Existing. if it exists or not. Right. It's existence itself. Right. But it's like you look at there's been many um, published papers by scientists, immunologists, virologists, pandemologists. Big I words. I say that word. Pan, pandemic professionals um, who have come out and hmm. said that this thing either either they have said it does not exist or this isn't as bad as it's being said. Now the numbers don't lie. If you look at the survivability True. rate, that alone will tell you it's ninety nine point like seven ninety nine point seven ninety seven ninety nine point two on the very high side. There's numbers that say it's ninety seven. Well, there are there's a fourteen. I think the highest I've seen, and I don't know where the source is or anything like that. The highest death rate I've seen was 14%. Right. But that was in people 80 to 90 years old and that with pre-existing. Well, I, I'm not going to say with pre-existing health conditions, but I've yet to meet someone between the ages of 80 or 90 who don't have medical issues. Right. have some co- type of comorbidity. And that doesn't mean exactly. you have a deadly disease. It means you have something that is yeah, very you, makes you very fragile. Your heart's ways. wearing out because yeah. it's 85 years old. Exactly. You know, it's been pumping for a right. minute. And another thing to pay attention to and is like where the numbers are derived from. Now, if you go to like retirement communities, which there are some retirement communities that have 60, 70, 80, 100, 200,000 members in their community that are between the ages of 50 and 90 years old, yeah. um, sometimes even higher. And the, the death triple rate is fucking tripled, man. That's freaking landmark. But um, now in covid or any sort of extreme virus hits a group like that, it's going to be devastating because they're susceptible to those things. And right. it's going to be a lot more serious than you or me who gets, you know, the cold flu, COVID, pneumonia, whatever it may be. Um, Something that we could pretty easily fight off. Exactly. So now if you look at like one area like that, where like you say, the percentage of survivability drops down to say 86%. Anemone. 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 Um, it drops down to 86%, which eh, that starts to become a little more scary on that number. But then you look at, say, um, a college town that, you know, we'll, we'll use Wazoo, for example, mm-hmm. um, Pullman, which is comprised of mostly younger people, Young, college yeah. people. They get or sick. Or older, like, professor. Right. You know, a little like bit that. of the the older retired type people are right. And, right, um, right. But you look at like a community like that, that's a little more diverse or a lot more younger people and their survivability is a lot higher. Like say it's like 98 or 99%. Um, now if you take all those collectively throughout the whole United States, your numbers and you go on an average, your survivability rate is going to sit higher to that 98, 99, 99.5% survivability rate, depending on which graph and um, chart you use. Um, and so it's like, like let's use flu for example to talk about the seriousness of um covid because we're so focused on covid as a society right now when it comes to um a sickness or a virus Just that a little bit. they the media has played into this one so hard that everything that we're doing so well is played into the low um flu records now 
I don't think in the history of keeping track of the flu that the numbers have been this low. So they said um, in 2019, the flu season, which is just September 29th to December 28th, well, for the year of 2019, the CDC reported more than 65 cases of influenza nationwide. Take a guess at how many were calculated for 2020 at that time frame. So there were 60 cases of influenza A? 65,000. just oh, 65,000. 65,000 influenza nationwide and from end of September to end of December. So three months. So three months. You had 65,000 cases. In 2019. Guess what they calculated for 2020 for that same amount of time. For the same three months? Yeah. 60,000? 1,000. 1,000 cases was all that was reported. Um, Really? This is from the CDC. Health experts say that high vaccination rates against the flu combined with social distancing, mask wearing, and hand washing employed to stop the spread of coronavirus played a huge role in preventing influenza transmission. Not that much. No, I'm sorry. You don't just get, you don't just drop. You don't just drop that much. No. And so the drop occurred despite a six-fold increase in testing at public health labs, most of which check for influenza A and B along with the coronavirus. I'm going to dive into another conspiracy theory here. There has been many um, people, like professionals that I'd actually pay attention to, come forward and say that the COVID checks are spiking. They're coming positive um, as a result of um, flu A or flu B. Um, So these COVID checks are getting stuffed in people's noses. Whether you have COVID A or, or influenza, have A you or B. been tested? Yeah, Shit twice. Fucking hurts. It hurts. It sucks bad. Oh, Elijah, he had a bloody nose for two days, just off and on. It well, wouldn't yeah, go away. Like his sinus that you could see in his face. Up. Yeah, his his sinus was just they swollen. They went way up in that sinus. Yep. Like, and um, nasty. And so they've said that flu A and B are causing, um positive COVID tests. Mm-hmm. Now, I can't remember if it was the WHO or the CDC that came out and um, admitted that their COVID tests, one of the tests that they were using was, um, I can't remember if it was 40 or 60% um, uh, correct. Like there were actual positive positives, not false positives or anything like that. Only four. I can't remember if it was 40, 40 or 60. To, well, either way, either that's numbers, not a good number. That's not I a mean, good number. I mean, 60 is a little bit better, but. And then there was on the other side of it that Shit. they were saying that they weren't even catching COVID. They come out a negative and they were a false negative. That's a bad thing in the medical world if you have a test that's used and it could be a false positive. It could be a false positive. A false it could negative. be a false negative. I mean, I mean a false negative. Well, a false negative is a lot worse. It's a lot worse to go from what I understand from my um, limited medical experience, yeah, it's it's a lot worse to not be treated for something that you may have right. than to be turned away and say you're fine when you actually have something going on. It's like saying, oh, no, you don't have cancer, and then two months later you come back at stage four. Yeah. Because they didn't catch it. So not saying that that's, you know, you should treat everybody like they have COVID or whatever. Or cancer. Or cancer. But the whole point here is, is that we've been, I I mean, it's a huge people have let fears, fear is a big, um, I want to say motivator. Fear is a powerful, um, it is though, but you think about, so let's play the middle ground. Let's say, cause it's 40 to 60%. So let's say 50, 50, right? You have a test that works 50% of the time. Mm -hmm. 
but also could be a false positive, could be a false negative. How can you say that's reliable? Right. When it's, you only have a 50% chance of it being accurate. And then on top of that, you could be a false positive. You could be a false negative. Exactly. That doesn't, you don't know. And and then to furthermore, to look at, okay, what they do on the treatment side, say like we go in, um, and well, most of it is my brother, for example, most of it is go home, treat it like you have the flu and they don't really keep you unless you have unless you can't heart bre- conditions yeah, you or can't breathe. They need to asthma you or, or something. something like that. Exactly. Right. And so it's like you look at my brother and his wife, for example. They got it. They had to get tested for work mm-hmm. um, because, well, with, in light of everything, in order for them to miss work, they needed to be, you know, have some sort of condition, of course. Um, so they got tested. They came back positive. Um, and that's what they did. They said, go home, hydrate, rest. Let it run its course like you do with the fucking flu. Unless on the extreme side where you get super sick, you can't keep anything down or inside you and you start getting dehydrated or super sick or you can't breathe very well, stuff like that, that sends you back to the hospital. That doesn't happen 99% of the time with COVID unless you have comorbidities. Yeah. Or, and there's, there's just like anything else, you know, there's going to be perfectly healthy people that catch it and it hits their bodies wrong and they fucking die just like with anything else. Right. It's like, you know, you could have a perfectly healthy 24-year-old marathon runner who just has a bad day skiing or a good day skiing, catches the pneumonia and fucking dies because he's got a good body. He probably just thinks he has a little bit of a cough or something. All of a sudden, he can't breathe very well the next morning. And then his goes lungs in fill up. And he fucking dies in the ICU. It's just shitless. It sounds a little, I've gotten some flack for saying this, but it's like, I believe when it's your time to go, it's your time to go. And that's what it comes well, down you to. You can't really... You can't really argue that. I mean, yeah. people will argue whatever they Pandemic want to Pandemic aside or not. But, I mean, you can't really argue. I mean, we all got to die somehow. Exactly. You know, unfortunately, some people die young. Some people die old. Some people die about when people kind of expect you to. Right. I think the in the, in the U.S., what's the average lifespan? Like 79, 78, something like that. Something like that. As I just shut my laptop because we're clearing an hour. <laughs> Google something for me, Josh. Let's take a looky peek here. Average lifespan in the U.S. of A. Mm-hmm. Um, eighty years. Eighty. To flip this thing back on real quick. So that's yeah. what I'm seeing. Like real, you know, right eight, obviously seventy-eight point nine nine something like that. Yeah. Some people, years. some people hit a hundo. Some people have a heart attack at fifty. You know, it it's unfortunate, but it happens. It's just kind of the way the world works. The hmm. I'm just looking average life expectancy actually. So U.S. So the uh, the current life expectancy for the U.S. in 2021 is 78.99 years. And it's an increase from 2020. The life expectancy in 2020 was 78.93 years, a 0.08% increase from 2019. So if you start looking at statistical numbers like this, your life expectancy like goes up. It sounds shitty, but it's like even all these people that we've lost due to COVID, and I say that quote unquote, has not affected our norm numbers that we run still as on algorithms like this on life expectancy because if it's a significant number it will cause it'll cause increasing jumps for 2021 
Mm-hmm. If in theory, like if so many people died in 2020, that means the life expectancy was actually lower than predicted, meaning 2021 should be actually a lot better than what they predicted initially. Right. Because if we have a bunch of 30, 40, 50 year olds dropping dead of COVID, right. that's going to take the life expectancy. It's going to way down. down. Exactly. And it's like, I'm still waiting. It's hard to find um, actual uh, death statistics in the U.S. right now because they're still compiling numbers of everybody who died in 2020. Right. It takes time. It does. But if you look at it, so far right now, we're on track for the same amount of people that died in 2019. It is, um, it's either the same or slightly increased, which is normal as population increases and people die, more people die. Um, 2020 is either about the same or the the, per, the predicted percentage increase that has been set over a 10-year period. Did it, make, did it make sense there? Yeah. And so it's like, I'm waiting for the actual numbers to drop. I think the CDC does them and... Um, the World Health Organization does them too for them to get the full like, okay, this is how many people died in 2020 in the world. And then you compare it to the ones in the previous years and you can do some quick math there and realize that, okay, it wasn't really lethal as we said it was. All these people weren't just magically dying because of this huge bubonic plague. Um, it was just deaths that were labeled quickly as COVID. Right. Conspiracy statement there, but I digress. <sighs> conspiracies. Yeah. Conspiracies. That's we'll fine. Probably, we'll probably talk about more conspiracies next week, but Hell yeah. you never know. Got some heroes talk, though. Oh, yeah. Have How we ever talked about I? Alvin C. York? Um, I don't think we have. Maybe? I don't know. That was like. You did it just long enough to where it was almost annoying, but it didn't end up being that way. <laughs> it, was, it was very close. It was very close. Uh, um, Alvin C. York, born in 19, 19, <laughs> born in 1887 in Paul Mall, Tennessee. Alvin C. York was a blacksmith who was drafted into the Army during World War One while serving in the 82nd Infantry Division. He took command and captured a total of 132 German soldiers. York Dang. was... Yeah, right? York was promoted to the rank of sergeant and received the Medal of Honor. His heroic story was told in the film Sergeant York. Uh, do I feel like we've kind of maybe you talked about him. I don't think so. It's not ringing any bells. I don't think so. Um, oh, I thought this one had a lot more information than that. Damn it. Uh, um, it says York was a pacifist who took command of troops when senior officers were killed. Or put out of action, he proceeded to kill 28 Germans and captured 132 others. He also got the Distinguished Service Cross. How did he kill Germans if he was a pacifist? That's, that was that was my my question. Um, was, uh, oh, that's hmm. um, sorry, everybody who's listening right now. Um, dead I thought I had a lot more the information on dead. Mr. Sergeant York. Um, so let's see. We'll just go to the good old Wikipedia. Um, so he was one of the most decorated soldiers in World War One. Received the Medal of Honor for leading an attack on German machine gun nests, taking at least one machine gun, killing at least twenty-five enemy soldiers, and capturing one hundred and thirty-two. Um, York's Medal of Honor action occurred during the United States-led portion of the the. I'm going to butcher this. Meuse Argonne Offensive in France. 
not which, terrible. Not terrible, but still, I probably still fucked it. Which was <laughs> intended to breach the Hindenburg Line and force the Germans to surrender. He earned the decorations for whom several Allied countries during World War One, including France, Italy, and Montenegro. Montenegro. Yeah, I think I said that one right. Mm-hmm. York was born in rural Tennessee. Blah blah. blah in 1918, as a newly promoted corporal. Uh, his group of 17 soldiers assigned to infiltrate German lines silenced a machine gun position. Um, German small firearms killed six Americans and wounded three. York was the highest rank of those still able to fight, so he took charge. That's a good banner there. While his men guarded the prisoners, York attacked the machine gun position, killing several German soldiers with his rifle before running out of ammo. Six German soldiers charged him with bayonets, and York drew his pistol and killed all of them. <laughs> That's pretty impressive with... Uh, I mean, provided what pistol? They had like nine rounders then, nine, ten. Yeah, it'd be like, would they have 1911s back then? It would be or would that be revolvers? Um, it depends. I mean, if it's a revolver, that's six shots. And that's impressive. Six guys, six mm-hmm. shots. That's a shit that a movie should be made with. Oh, I know, right? It probably is. You ever seen John Wick? It's pretty much what it is. It's exactly how it is. Kids, people, pencils. Yep. The German officer responsible for the machine gun position had emptied his pistol while firing at York, but failed to hit him. <laughs> this officer, this officer, then I find it ironic that someone tried killing him with a pistol and they failed miserably, and then died. This officer then f- offered to surrender, and York accepted. Huh, that's you know that's even a good man right there. York and his men marched back to their unit's command post and hung him by his neck. Just kidding. That was that was a joke. Uh, a post with more than 130 prisoners. York was ad- admitted immediately promoted to sergeant and was awarded the distinguished service cross and then they upgraded it to medal of honor york's feet made him a national hero yeah and then he went to after a group of tennessee businessmen purchased a farm far, they purchased a farm for york his new wife and their growing family he later formed a charitable foundation to improve education opportunities for children in rural tennessee um Worked as the superintendent for the Civil Conservation Corps and managed construction of the Bird Lake Reservoir at Cumberland Mountain State. So he just came back and just became a fucking productive member of society, a blue-collar American. God bless him. And then he goes on to talk about the movie. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. He died in Nashville, Tennessee in 64, was buried at Wolf River Cemetery in his hometown of Pall Mall, Tennessee. Hmm. Yep. Look at that hardworking American for the American dream, damn it. Right, just going out there, being a man, getting the job done, and then heading on home and put some babies in the missus and lead a life. (sighs) It's so beautiful. It is. All righty. Well, we were... Over time for the week. When have we not done that? <laughs> Never. No such thing as over time hanging out with beautiful Americans. But we got to go. We do. It is that time. <laughs> it's that time. Thank you all so much for joining us. Make sure uh, if you do want to hear about something on the show or have a comment about something on the show, uh, Facebook, Instagram. Personal numbers if you got it. It's all Bill Blue. Yeah, personal numbers. If you don't have it, there's probably a reason for that. I want a commission if they're using my phone. <laughs> CIA has it, but they listen to everything, so who cares? Ooh. But They probably enjoy it. They probably do, or they hate it, one of the two. They probably stopped listening. They probably do. But make sure, send us any ideas you got, anything that'll help us. If you want to come on the show as a guest, let us know. Send us a message. Shoot us a text message. Do whatever you want to. We'll get her done. We like guests. And we like guests. They're fun. 
But until next time, you beautiful Americans, you stay classy. Take care of each other. Be safe. And we'll talk to you next time. God bless America.